0: Good evening, everyone. Good to have you all here with us tonight. Before we um, get into our study, which is going to be in the book of Ezekiel, by the way, We're just starting, actually, a a new series of studies in Ezekiel. (coughs) I can assure you it won't take as, it it won't be as quick as it was in in Habakkuk and uh, Obadiah and uh, the uh, few other uh, minor prophets that we've been studying here of late. But uh, we will actually be going as quickly through the first uh, 28 or so verse, uh, chapters, actually, as, as quick as we can. Uh, tonight, being an introduction, it gives us, uh, it kind of cuts us a little short in, in chapter one, but, but uh, I intend to actually go through chapter, the rest of chapter one and chapter two next week so that we can kind of be on pace to where we need to be. But um, before we get into that, I, I'd like to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians. This is not uh, going to be up here on the, on the board, so I need to ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for just a moment. This is, this is kind of a very quick little uh, prophecy update, as it were. And uh, here in, in chapter 12, okay, lights, please. We have too many lights on here, so we can... Maybe not see this clearly when it's time. Thank you. All right. But uh, there's there's one little passage that um, that I'd like to uh, draw your attention to. And actually, verses uh, verses four uh, on down. Chapter Twelve of First Corinthians, uh, it says, "Now, now these are—I'm sorry—there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit; and there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord; and there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all." Isn't it good to know that we have one God who gives us all these gifts, but all the gifts work together uh, because there's one God and uh, and one Spirit? Uh, so then he says, "But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man." To profit with all, for to one is given, now notice this, to one is given by the Spirit the, the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another the gift of healing by the same Spirit. Now please notice carefully in verse 10, it says, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits. We'll stop there for just a second. To another discerning of spirits. Now, this doesn't mean that some have some and some have others, and some have none and some have most. All right, We, we can argue that part if you study 1 Corinthians chapter 12, dealing with all the gifts of the Spirit. But I am convinced that as you go through the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, I am convinced that every believer in Jesus Christ, every believer in Jesus Christ, Needs to have the gift of discerning of spirits, because we know that we have been told in other parts, in other portions of Scripture, Matthew chapter twenty-four, especially what Jesus says about the latter days, what the Apostle Paul says in First Corinthians, uh, I'm sorry, in First Thessalonians, and uh, I should say First Timothy chapter four and Second Timothy chapter three. When he talks about the end times and, and, and the days in which we're living. And seeing all the things that are going on and the deception that is coming upon the church today, it is a grave deception. And I believe that we cannot be like a lot of people in, in, in this world today that move by the sense of their feelings or their emotions when it comes to very critical issues, uh, for example, like we see. Happening in our own country today through the uh, uh this uh, uh, presidential um, uh, uh, process or the the, uh, the preparing for a, uh, a presidential election at, at the end of this uh, year two thousand and sixteen and I truly believe that we cannot just look at that as some other kind of situation and not apply what God has given us to apply with wisdom to the things that we are listening to out of all the candidates. I'm not here to tell you who to vote for. That's, that's not what I'm saying this about. But I'm saying this because today too many people are listening to all kinds of voices without being discerning of the spirits that are actually working in, in all of the things that are going on today in our country. And our country is in, 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 in dire straits. Our country is in a bad place today. Because as a country, as a nation, we have forsaken God. Period, the end. We have forsaken God. We have little by little over the last century uh, set his word aside even to the point of telling people that you cannot read it, you cannot say it, you cannot speak it, you can't do it in the church, in the schools, you can't, you can't do it in public places, when all along we always had the freedom to do this in public places. And never to stop anyone else from whatever they believe, but but all of a sudden everything became so polarized in this country. And the church fell asleep because we did not, believe the Word of God. And we stopped discerning the spirits. We stopped doing what the Word of God says as it tells us in 1 John chapter 4 to test the spirits to see if they are of God. We don't do that just in church. We have to do that in every aspect of our lives. Everywhere we are, everywhere we go, everywhere we work, everywhere we we are taken by the Lord, if indeed we are His servants and we are moving according to the will and purpose of God in the name of Jesus Christ and by the power of His Holy Spirit. So when you have such a division in the church today, and and I can tell you this, for the stand that we take today for the Word of God The stand that we take for the nation of Israel today because we believe what God's Word says about Israel, we, we are in the minority today. But I can tell you this, it's not about being in the majority. It's about being right with God. It's about being right with His Word. And it begins with our learning and understanding and knowing and reading and staying in the Word of God and by being discerning, by testing the spirits. Because if you remember when we we studied Ephesians chapter 6 about the armor of God, we are told that uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against every spirit, every principality, every power, every uh, every thing in high places that goes against the word of God and we've read enough and studied enough in the prophets and in the book of Revelation and, and, and all that, uh, that there is an enemy that seeks to destroy us and if he could he would even deceive the very elect so it makes you wonder what does it mean to be an elect if we could be deceived I pray we are not I pray we stay vigilant in God's Word. But I, I'm, I'm just appalled at the attitude of, of, of some people running for the highest office in this land and saying the things that they're saying and people are following them as if they're just, you know, they, they found their Messiah. Folks, be careful. Our Messiah has already come and He's coming again. And he's not running for president because he's king of all. And we need to just be, we need to be understanding, we need to be reasonable, we need to be rational in our thinking. But when you have some of the biggest quote-unquote evangelical institutions and universities in this country that choose to, to follow a certain person that, is, that doesn't even know the scriptures, you probably all know who I'm talking about. I can assure you this. He is not the Trump of God. Please, please, please pay attention. Please pray and please discern. Because we've already been duped for eight years as a nation. We do this one more time. Forget it as far as a nation is concerned. Certainly we can put our, our faith and hope and trust in the Lord, and we are looking for the coming of Jesus Christ, yes. But if we love this nation, we need to pray for it, and we need to stand on the right side, God's side. This isn't one of those elections where we just say, well, you know, you can vote for this, you can vote for that. Yeah. No, this is critical. This is, this is going to be life-changing for this country. So I just, I just encourage you to understand what Paul meant when he said that we are to have discerning of spirits. And we need to test to see if things are of God or deceiving spirits. And, and real, realize that we have to apply it to everything in this life, not just things in the church. Okay, so... I got that off. Thank you for being so attentive and giving me a chance to get that off my chest. Here, Ezekiel chapter 1. What happened to my clicker? There it is. All right. Let's turn there and look at verses 1 through 3. We'll read this and then we'll begin our study. Now it came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, In the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kabar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. In the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, the word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest. Notice that he's spoken in the first person, now in the third person. The word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel, the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Kebar, and the hand of the Lord was there upon him. Father, as we begin this, this new study of, of uh, the scriptures, we, we pray for the anointing and blessing of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to rightly divide your word. Lord, we want to rightly lay a good foundation for our understanding of, of this great prophecy that... Uh, that not only deals with Israel of the past, but it deals with Israel of the present as well. And this is so significant to us, Lord God, to to be able to get to these chapters, Lord, with wisdom and understanding. And so we ask for the anointing and blessing of your Spirit and give us, Lord God, the the leading of your Spirit through this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You know, it's always a challenging goal in, in starting a, a study in a biblical book as long and expansive as the prophecy of Ezekiel. But realizing its length and considering its content makes for, it makes for an interesting plan for outlining its presentation. What we have going for us, though, are the current conditions that we have happening in the world around us, which move us, to, which move us toward learning as much as we can from this Hebrew prophet without trying to rush too quickly through the text, and yet moving through the text. So, this is not, I would have to say, this is not the first book that I would recommend to someone who's just come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. You know, I wouldn't say you just got saved, well, read the book of Ezekiel. Ah, yeah, as, as we'll find out here in just a moment. But I have to say that it is a, an essential work for all in the body of Christ, young and old, babes or mature, who recognize that we are living in the last days. And we need to be equipped with and in all of God's Word. So now there is something quite significant and quite unusual about this prophecy in comparison to the other prophets. The emphasis of Ezekiel, so if you're taking notes, write the emphasis of Ezekiel. The emphasis of Ezekiel is not so much on judgment, even though you'll find judgment in this book. The emphasis of Ezekiel is not on judgment as it is on comforting God's people, which is in the other prophets, but not to the degree that you find in Ezekiel. Ezekiel will receive, will write, and recite his prophecies near that Kabar Canal. I, I know it's called a river, but in reality, it was just a canal. We'll talk more about that later. But he will receive these prophecies near the the, the Canal by what has been described as an ancient concentration camp close to Babylon. That's where the Jewish colony was. And it was considered like a prison camp or a concentration camp. Keep that in mind. But he has given received this prophecy and gave this prophecy to encourage the Jewish exiles that were in Babylon. Now the theme of Ezekiel is simple. The theme of Ezekiel is the glory of God. It is the sovereign glory of God. The Hebrew word for glory is the word Kavod. Now it could be spelled K-O-V, I'm sorry, K-A-V-O-D or C-H-A-V-O-D. Kavod. And the word just means heavy. It 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 means heavy as in thought, heavy as in fact. And and so when you think of glory, you know, the 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 one thing we think of is is the brightness of God's glory, so bright, you know, we think of light. But Have you ever been under heavy light? (laughs) There, there actually are are, uh, opportunities for us. If you if you get under some pretty heavy light, I mean it's it's pretty hard to take. Kind of like sometimes they put these spotlights on, and and man, I'm like ah, and it's (laughs) I mean it's it's pretty heavy. You know, it gets not heavy in weight. You know, understand, but heavy in its presence. So so this this glory that Ezekiel speaks of throughout this book is is to show that God, I mean, we're dealing with God's attributes. We're dealing with God's abilities, which are far beyond our own and worthy of our our consideration, worthy of our praise, worthy of our worship. It's interesting, the great uh, Christian author C.S. Lewis uh, once wrote a a, a work called uh, "The weight of glory and 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 so it's it's a it's an interesting you know he applies it you know that word right to what what this glory means but the key phrase now in Ezekiel, the key phrase is this, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God that is the key phrase in the book of Ezekiel, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. This phrase is found 70 times in the book of Ezekiel, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God. Add to this the facts that God is called Lord God 400 times in Ezekiel. I'd say that's pretty significant. Lord God is his name and, 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 and really his, his, his title, his character. Lord being his name, Yashem, or Hashem, I should say. Hashem mean, meaning the name, because his name was, was too holy to pronounce. So, you know, some people called him Jehovah or Yahweh, dealing with the, the four letters, uh, YHWH, what is called a tetragrammaton. Uh, we see those four words, those, that's his name, which what we read in, in, in let's, let's take for example in Exodus when, when he meets with uh, uh, Moses at the burning bush, he says, Who should I say is sending me? And he says, I am that I am. That's Y H W H is his name. That's my name. I am is my name. And of course, we apply the, the name I am to Jesus because how many times does Jesus say what he says? I am. I am the bread of life, I, I, am the light, I am the light of the world, and, and I'm the good shepherd, and, and every time he mentions that, he, he's saying who he is, he is, in fact, uh, the glory of God. And so, the Lord God, Lord God is used 400 times, and the phrase, I am the Lord God, is found 59 times. So, Ezekiel is a book about God. The theme is the glory of God, but the book is about God. So as we're, studying, as we're starting the study in the book, guess, guess what? We're studying a book about God. But then again, we can say, well, are we doing that when we study Genesis through Revelation? Exactly. But the emphasis now is upon the glory of God. And by the way, Ezekiel is God's prophecy, not Ezekiel's prophecy. Always remember that, that every prophet that ever spoke and ever received prophecy from God we, we always say, well, this is the book of Isaiah, or this is the book of Jeremiah, this is the book of Ezekiel, this is the prophecy of, of Habakkuk, or whoever else. Yeah, we, we do that because it, they received it, but it's still God's prophecy. And all the prophecies of all the prophets, from the Old to the New Testament, all the prophecies received never contradict each other. And that, you know, that's the beauty of God's Word. That's the beauty of Genesis to Revelation. That's the beauty of 66 books. All having one thread through it all. And that's God's wisdom, God's grace, God's mercy, and God's truth. But Ezekiel is also a book for our time. And this prophecy is given to us In this century, 21st century, this prophecy is given to us to understand Israel today and its hostile enemies. And there are a good number of hostile enemies of Israel today. More on that later. Now, why do we say that this is a book for today for us to understand Israel? All I need to tell you is if you read Ezekiel chapter 37, you read the prophecy of the dry bones and the resurrection of the nation of Israel it is a prophecy of the rising up from death and 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 really what we have as as a a very very current picture is how Israel rose from the ashes of the holocaust in the previous century and in the 20th century with many of us uh, remember the 20th century but Israel rose from those ashes to become the nation that God wants them to be in these last days so that he can go ahead, continue to finish the work that he began in preparing them for the coming of their Messiah Jesus Christ because when he comes the second time every eye shall see him and when they who are his people see him The scriptures tell us they will begin to weep because they see the scars on his hands and they'll know who he is. So this is a book for our time. Now the name Ezekiel and the Hebrew pronunciation is Yekitzken. So Ezekiel, I'd rather just say Ezekiel. So that's what we're going to say. But the name Ezekiel means The strength of God, or it also can mean God strengthens. The strength of God, or God strengthens. And we will see how God not only strengthens the prophet, but strengthens a nation through the prophet. In verse 3 that we just read, he is called... Let me get back there. I had my there it is. In verse three, it says, "The word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel, the priest." Notice that he is called the priest, not just a priest. So there's an emphasis on, on this, this, little, uh, uh, this little word here, this little article, the priest." So he's an, he is obviously an important priest. He is in the line of priests, and that's significant. To some extent, Ezekiel will be a type of Jesus who was not only a prophet, but also a priest. Certainly after a different order, but nonetheless a priest. But the fact is, as far as Ezekiel is concerned, he would never serve in the temple in Jerusalem as he would stay in in exile throughout his whole life. He will be a priest serving outside of the temple. He is also called the son of Buzi. Buzi is an interesting word because the name Buzi, that's his father's name. Uh, Buzi means to shame. To shame. But don't get the, uh, the, the this is not a, in, 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 the, in the, what would we would call uh, in, in the negative sense <laughs> or in the, you know, the wrong sense. It is actually in a very good sense that Buzi, uh, this name is given. Because Buzi represents the sons of men who allow themselves to be shamed for the sake of God's honor and glory. People who allow themselves to be shamed for the sake of God's honor and glory. So making this actually a good thing and a godly testimony. And this was necessary in the time of, of the Jewish exile in Babylon. Because there were so many people that were, that were ashamed of what had happened to their nation. Many of them ashamed that they themselves had, had, had some part in bringing Israel out of of their land and taken into captivity both in Assyria and and, and in Babylon there was shame involved in that certainly and then there were others who didn't have any shame whatsoever as we're going to find out as we get into the book of Ezekiel and find find that these people who should have known that God was bringing judgment upon them were still resistant to the discipline of God But Buzzy is, is I, th- I think it's a significant name you know, for the father of Ezekiel. Because the prophets had to live with this kind of shame for the, for the sake of, of the honor and glory of God, as well as the apostles of Jesus Christ. Take, for example, in the book of, of Acts, chapter 5, where, where the apostles were arrested by the high priest and the Sadducees for preaching the gospel. And, I, you know, we could read through chapter 5 if you, if you want, but we don't have time. But I just want, I want to show you in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, what it says. Uh, speaking of the disciples, after they, had been, after they had been scolded and told, listen, you are to never preach in that name again. Now, for some people, they would have been ashamed. But I want you to notice something. They departed from the presence of the council. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. Worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus Christ. And when you read the next verse, it just says, after this, you know, they went and they prayed, and then they went out and preached the name in the name of Jesus. Because you see, no matter what the law tells you, as far as the law of the land or the law of people, the law of God says different. So can we be counted worthy to suffer shame for the glory of Christ and His Word? So let's get to the background now of the book of Ezekiel. This is what will take us a little bit of time. Is getting to the background of Ezekiel. It is important. You know, most of the time we can read through that in our, in our uh, you know, uh, if you have study Bibles, they always have some, some great uh, list of stuff at the beginning to talk to you about the time and the background and stuff. And, and this is part of it, but this is so important for us to understand what's happening in Ezekiel's time and why it got to where it was. Why it got to where it, it became for them, this, uh, this captivity. So in chapters 1 through 3, the first three chapters, we're, we're going to deal specifically with the call of God to Ezekiel. We're going to deal specifically with the call of God to Ezekiel, and again, that for a specific or a specific purposes, and we'll, when we'll talk more about that as we, as we open up our study. But chapter one itself will focus on the sight of God's glory. The sight of God's glory. And the 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 whole theme, as I, as I mentioned before, the glory of God really is encapsulated in the words of verse 1, and I saw visions of God. And I saw visions of God. Now, I know that in our day and time, and with Facebook and all kinds of other social media, we got a lot of people seeing things. Man, have you ever ever looked at YouTube for a little while and you just... All these people are just showing you all kinds of... They go out there with their cameras and then they say, well, we saw this vision, we saw that vision. And in certain areas, they're hearing trumpets, uh, sounds in some areas and, you know, all this is going on. And, you know, here again, what I said earlier about discerning, uh, this is where we have to be discerning. But Ezekiel saw visions of God. Now, that, that that captivates me. I mean, it really captivates me to think that he's saying, I I saw visions of God. And then as we read on in just a moment, we're going to say, whoa, what kind of vision is that? And by the way, we're not going to sit here and talk about helicopters and spaceships and aliens and all kinds of stuff because people do that when you get to the book of Ezekiel. So we're not going to spend time doing that. But before we begin the text, we have to consider when all of this takes place. When all of this takes place. We begin with Nineveh. Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. Now you're saying, well, we're not in Nineveh, we know we're not. But it has to begin here. You need to understand the process of history. You need to understand the process of biblical history and world history. It's, it's very important for a couple of reasons. First of all, it shows the reliability of the, of the Word of God. The Word of God is Reliable. And, and, and it is, I mean, it is concise and precise. So Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, fell in 612 BC to the Babylonians who were assisted by the Medes. So you look at history and history will tell you exactly the same thing. The Babylonians and the Medes got together and they destroyed Assyria who was the world power at that time, destroyed Assyria, and Nineveh being the capital, fell to the Babylonians. Nabopolassar, Nabopolassar, who ruled from 625 to 605 B.C., was the king who drove out the Assyrians and the Egyptians once for all in 610 B.C. The Assyrians and the Egyptians, historically, and you, you can understand this when you study uh, history, they had made an alliance. But the Babylonians and the Medes were stronger, bigger, and po- more powerful in their, in, in their alliance that they wiped out the Assyrians and the Egyptians. And so in 610, the Assyrians as a nation and the Egyptians were, were actually wiped out. The Egyptians, you know, they went back to, you know, they went back to their own land. But Nabopolassar's son, and you will recognize his name, Nebuchadnezzar, he's actually known as Nebuchadnezzar II. But Nebuchadnezzar, who who ruled from 605 to 562 B.C., he won one of the greatest battles of ancient history. It is the Battle of Karshemish. and that was in 605 B.C. And this is a battle that is actually mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 46, verse 2. So we not only have history, but we also have biblical uh, uh, accreditation here. Uh, the word of the Lord which came to Jeremiah the prophet against the Gentiles, against Egypt, against the army of Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, which was by the river Euphrates in Karshemish, And you can read on in Jeremiah 46 about this a particular event, so now jehoiakim and that 's k i m at the end m as in man, Jehoiakim, king of judah king josiah 's oldest son, now King Josiah was a good king, Jehoiakim was not so Jehoiakim was made a vassal of Babylon, in other words, when the Babylonians came into the area, they took you know they took all of the all the leadership of of, of nations or, or or city states or whatever, and they took their leaders and made them vassals, like like uh, uh, you know puppet kings, serving the ma- the big king who was uh, Nebuchadnezzar at the time. So Jehoiakim now becomes a vassal of Babylon during Babylon's first siege of Jerusalem, which was in 605 BC, and he was taken with Jewish nobility. Which would mean the cream of the crop, the best of the best, to Babylon. Now, in that first deportation, Daniel and his friends—I remember Daniel, right—the prophet Daniel, Daniel and his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were also taken to Babylon. Later on, they were, they were all, all their names would be—all their names would be changed, you know, to Belteshazzar, to uh, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. But uh, these were the Hebrew young men that stood strong for the Lord and not uh, uh, never succumb to, to the Babylonian uh, gods. But after rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, Jehoiakim's son Jehoiakin, C-H-I-N at the end of his name, pronounced almost the same but with an N like Nancy at the end, Jehoiakin, he became king. And he only lasted three months and ten days before the Babylonians came upon the nation a second time. And they came in 598 or uh, to 597 BC, carrying back to Babylon some 10,000 prisoners, including King Jehoiakim and the prophet Ezekiel. So now we see Ezekiel being taken to uh, Babylon. Ezekiel lived in Jerusalem, lived in that area, uh, probably heard or, or at least heard about, but more than likely heard, the prophet Jeremiah and the prophecies of Jeremiah to, to the kings, especially Jehoiakim. And uh, if you need to read about this, just turn to 2 Kings verse, uh, chapter 24. So write that in so you can look it up. 2 Kings 24 verses 10 through 17 gives us what happened there to the kings Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim. But now, because of that rebellion in Jehoiakim's place, Nebuchadnezzar placed Josiah's youngest son, Mataniah, whose name actually was changed to Zedekiah. And he became king. Again, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah were not good kings. They were all bad kings. But their father was a good king. Or at least, uh, well... uh, Josiah was. But in 589 B.C., Zedekiah joined with Tyre, Ammon, and Edom. Are those friends? Sometimes they say your best, uh, you know, your, what is it? Your, the enemy of your enemy is your friend, you know, and that's, so, you know, they did exactly what God always told them not to do. Don't, don't make alliances with these other people. But Zedekiah did, he joined with Tyre, Ammon, and Edom against Babylon, uh, Babylon, which brought Nebuchadnezzar back. But this time when Nebuchadnezzar comes back, he comes back with rage against Judah and Jerusalem, destroying it completely along with Solomon's temple. So now the temple's gone. And in 586 B.C., listen to this, Zedekiah was captured, and before his own eyes, his sons were killed, right before his own eyes. His sons were killed. And then, to leave that image in his mind, his eyes, his own eyes were gouged out, and he was sent as a blind man to Babylon. And it's interesting that Babylonian chronicles and records mention Jehoiakim, not Zedekiah, as king of the land of Judah. Nebuchadnezzar was so angry at, at what Zedekiah did in raising one more rebellion against Babylon that he would not even acknowledge Zedekiah as a king. But much of this, of course, can be read about in scripture. So I've pointed out a few places where you can read, but you know, you read the kings, you read the, uh, the chronicles, you can read the prophets, especially Jeremiah. And you'll see a lot of these names that I've mentioned here today. But at this point in the nation's history, why do I mention all of that? Because at this point in the nation's history, things looked pretty bad. Look around you today in our country. Things aren't pretty. They're not pretty they are not like the America that we once knew if you've been around long enough there used to be reasonable intellectual debate about issues today all we do is attack and call people by you know names and there's all all kinds of stuff going on and these are supposedly the leaders of the land When the foundations are gone, what do we have left so here in the nation in, in the nation of Israel and, and Judah, things looked really bad. there was no hope. things were dark, things were bleak. How would they ever come out of that? I mean it would seem that with this kind of with this kind of uh, 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 captivity with this kind of action by a king as 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 fierce as as Nebuchadnezzar, we would almost have to believe this nation's gone except for one thing: the God of this nation. The God of this nation would never go back on His word to care for His people. He wanted His people to love Him, but do you notice something? He never forced them to. He wanted it to come from their heart. And instead they went in all kinds of directions. But he knew that. He knew they would. Yet he made a covenant. He made a covenant with his people that he would restore them. So Ezekiel will be commissioned by God to speak to the captives in Babylon. And with all this heartache, With all this devastation that has come upon Judah, you would think that they would be ready and willing to listen to God, ready and willing to listen to the prophets that God had sent to them. But as we shall see, as we read and study this book, they were still not ready to get right with God. So we come back to our text. Oh, I never finished that last part. You know, it was really important to finish this last part of Jeremiah 46, verse 2. So it was Nebuchadnezzar, king of battle of Smote, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. So that, that was the, uh, the battle of Karshemesh. So I just, just thought I'd let you know. I <laughs> forgot to press that thing. All right, let's move on. Get back to Ezekiel 1, verse 1. It came to pass in the 30th year, in the fourth month, in the fifth day of the month, as I was among the captives by the river of Kebar, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God. First part, of course, we're going to talk about as far as is that a certain time of year, or is this the prophet's age? And then, of course, that the heavens were opened, and I saw visions of God, is so, so clear that Ezekiel has been called now and commissioned uh, to see the things that God wants him to see uh, in the midst of this uh, uh, tragedy of this nation. In the fifth day of the month, which was the fifth year of King Jehoiakim's captivity, gives us a little bit more indication of when this was written. The word of the Lord came expressly unto Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, which is the Babylonians, by the river Kebar, and the hand of the Lord was there upon him. Let's, let's not forget that last part. The hand of the Lord was there upon him. So now God calls Ezekiel, and the hand of the Lord is on him. I, I'd say that's, that's a, a pretty good indication that God is going to use Ezekiel. If God's hand is on you, He's going to use you. Commentators and students of this passage are not in agreement as to the significance of the 30th year mentioned here, but it is safe to say that it is more than likely referring to Ezekiel's age, which would mean that he went into captivity at the age of 25 in 597 B.C. and was now in the fifth year of Jehoiakim's captivity. Verse 2. But what is important to note here is that if you were a Jew, as Ezekiel was, if you were a Jew, you could go to war at age 20. At age 25, if you were a Levite, you could serve somewhere in the temple. Not as a priest, but you could serve in the temple. You know, serve the priests or do whatever labor needed to be done. But if you were a descendant of the priestly line of Aaron, you could function as a priest at the ripe old age of 30. 30 was the year. It's interesting to note that Jesus began his earthly ministry at the age of 30. And so I always keep this in mind when I look at the prophet Ezekiel that Ezekiel in, in, in many ways is a type of, of Christ in his priestly uh, duties. But as the book of Ezekiel opens, the, the prophet is already in captivity but would actually prophesy about the destruction of Jerusalem six or seven years before it happened. So we need, we need to keep, keep that in mind. Jerusalem has not been destroyed at this at, at the point where, where the things begin in the calling of, Je- of uh, Ezekiel. Uh, the first 24 chapters, as a matter of fact, were written before the fall of Jerusalem, but it was written after the first uh, de- deportations of the people. So the mention of the River Kabar, as, as we've seen already in verse 1, as I said, is actually a canal. I'll, I'll do more with, with giving you a little bit of an indication where it is next week, because we're going to talk a little bit more about it then. But uh, again, it's, it's not a river as it is a canal that was that was made actually uh, to, uh, uh, to, to be uh, serving in the area of, uh, uh, most people think north of Babylon. I, I would have to say sometimes it's, that's a little confusing. That's why I want to save it for next time to talk a little bit more about it. But the river Kabar is mentioned someplace else. It's mentioned in the book of Daniel. And so there is a link here between Ezekiel and Daniel as contemporaries. Because uh, even though Daniel conducted his ministry from the city of Babylon itself, he was transported to the river Kebar in receiving some of the prophecies, if you remember when we studied the book of Daniel. But Ezekiel himself ministered at the Jewish settlement or the prison camp or the concentration camp or whatever you want to call it, there by the river Kebar or the canal K-bar. So they both have a link to it, and yet both received visions from God at this place. So an interesting place, and again, we'll talk a little bit more about it later. But think about this for a moment. Excuse me. Ezekiel may have felt isolated and alone, he may have felt cut off from his homeland in the temple, and I, say, I would say that he's going to feel much more that way when he begins to speak on behalf of the Lord and nobody's listening to him, much like Jeremiah spoke, I mean, just constantly about what God wanted him to tell the people, and, and the people just wouldn't listen. So you get an idea now of the life of the prophet and what he, what he goes through when, when serving God. But he he may have felt this isolation, this aloneness, this being cut off from his homeland, being cut off from his temple. And yet he remained open to the voice of God. See, folks, remember this. Don't let the outward things that happen influence you in, in getting away from listening to God. In fact, let those things bring you closer to the heart of God. Let them bring you closer to the voice of God. Let them bring you deeper into the Word of God if you're going through times of struggle or trial or isolation or whatever that happens. See, we always go the opposite way. We need to go into the Word of God, not away from it when facing trials. So that makes good sense, doesn't it? Much better sense if we're running away from the things of God. So that should tell us that no matter where we are, no matter how we feel, The Lord wants to speak to us, and He wants to comfort us, and He wants to encourage us. But the question is are we listening? I thank God that Ezekiel was listening. I thank God that He saw the heavens open, and God showed Him the visions of Himself. As a matter of fact, what visions did He see? We're just going to open a little bit of the door to see some of those visions tonight. Let's look at verses 4. Well, I want to read 4 through 14. I just want to give you a bigger picture. And I looked at and behold, a whirlwind came out of the north. I remember, he sees visions of God. And a whirlwind came out of the, the north, a great cloud and a fire enfolding itself. And a brightness was about it. And out, out of the midst thereof, as the, as the color of amber, out of, out of the midst of the fire, Also out of the midst thereof came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the likeness of a man. This begins to sound a little bit like what we read in the book of Revelation. Keep that in mind. This was their appearance. They had likeness, the likeness of a man. They, so remember, all of them had the likeness of a man, and every one had four faces, and every one had four wings. And their feet were straight feet. And the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like the color of burnished brass. And they had the hands of a man under their wings and uh, on their four sides. And they, and they four had their faces and their, and their wings. And their wings were joined one to another. They, they turned not when they went. They went every one straight forward. As for the likeness of their faces, they four had the face of a man and the face of a lion on the right side, and, and the four had the face of a, a ox on the left side, and they four also had the face of an eagle. And thus were their faces, and their wings were stretched upward. Two wings of every one were joined one to another, and two covered their bodies they went everyone straight forward. Whether the Spirit was to go, they went, and they turned not when they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire and like the appearance of lamps. It went up and down among the living creatures. The fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures ran and returned as the appearance of a flash of lightning please don't ask me what that means not now for 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 now now keep in mind that ezekiel is trying to describe a heavenly vision using earthly terms. Keep that in mind. You see something that is just completely out of the ordinary, the only thing you have to describe it is what you have in your mind, in your experience, in your knowledge. The focus of the vision is these four living creatures, which we are told are Cherubim in chapter 10. So they're angelic. They're angelic beings. These angelic beings each had four wings. Their legs were straight. They had cloven feet, not like the feet of man. And they sparkled brightly in a bronze color. Under their wings, they had hands that were similar to the hands of a man. And when they moved, they didn't have to turn around because each one had four faces, and one of the faces was pointed in the direction they wanted to go. And the good thing is they, they all worked in concert because can you imagine four people trying to do the same thing? I tie four of you all together, and one you want to go in one direction, one you want to go in another direction, and the other one's going in the, other, you know, and you you know, the strongest one will pull you. So there, there's so there's some continuity here. And, and how they move and what they do. Each of these creatures was different. Each had the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. And as strange as this may sound, as strange as this may sound, what happens? What happens if we try to see Jesus in these creatures? As strange as that might sound. What happens if we try to see Jesus in these creatures? Now why do I say that? Because you see in Psalm 40 verse 7 it says, Then said I, Lo, I come. In the volume, or in the scroll of the book, it is written of me. Lo, I come. Take notice, I'm coming. This is is the Messiah. And he says, In the volume of the book, it is written of me. In the volume, which means in the whole of the book, from Genesis to Revelation, it is all about me. Which means that from Genesis to Revelation, the scriptures are testifying of Jesus Christ. But let's for a moment see what I mean regarding the faces of these creatures and their relationship to Jesus. Because in the faces of these cherubim, we see a picture of Christ which is also seen in the four Gospels. First, let's look at the face of a lion. Matthew portrays Jesus as the lion from the tribe of Judah. Matthew, in speaking to the Jewish people, shows that Jesus is the fulfillment of what the Hebrew prophet spoke of, that he is, in fact, the Mashiach, the Messiah. In fact, Matthew quoted more of the Old Testament messianic prophecies than any other gospel, because he was presenting to the Jewish people their Messiah. That is why the genealogy of Jesus is found in Matthew's Gospel and goes all the way back to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people. And then in the Gospel of Luke, the humanity of Jesus is presented to us, hence the face of a man. Over and over, some 25 times in this Gospel, we see the phrase, Son of Man, used. Interestingly enough, it is also a phrase that is used of Ezekiel, as we shall see. And the genealogy of Jesus, if you compare genealogies, the genealogy of Jesus that Luke gives us goes all the way back to the first man, Adam, again showing the humanity of Jesus. Face of a lion, Matthew, face of a man, Luke. And then the face of an ox or beast of burden corresponds to the gospel of Mark who presents Jesus as the suffering servant. We're told in Mark 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man, and these are the words of Jesus Himself, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give His life a ransom for many. Which more... People who call themselves ministers or preachers or whatever should pay attention to what Jesus said of himself and, and embrace that as their testimony. We didn't come to be ministered to, but to minister and to give our lives for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lastly, the face of an eagle. The eagle which speaks of power and majesty above the heights of men is presented to us in the Gospel of John. Jesus, the Son of God, with all power and majesty. Some 11 times that phrase is used, the Son of God, in John. And while there is no genealogy we can say that if in the place of a genealogy, this is what we get. We don't start with uh, some button someone begetting one thing or another. No, we go actually back to eternity past, when God is about to create the heavens and the earth. And John writes in the, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God the same was in the beginning with God in other words as eternal as God is so is the word all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made and so he himself is also the creator in him was life and the life was the light of men. Four characteristics, four faces, all one Christ, all one Messiah. So, as Ezekiel is receiving uh, visions of God. who does he get to see by jesus going back to verse 4 the whirlwind can be seen as a symbol of the judgment of god remember what we've seen in scripture so do the wind and you will reap the whirlwind in this case ezekiel saw god's judgment coming from the north the very direction from which the Babylonians would come to destroy Jerusalem. But as we read on through the book of Ezekiel, we'll find out that it's actually God that's coming, right? God is bringing judgment, but, he, but the vehicle or the instrument that he's going to use is the Babylonians. So what, what uh, Ezekiel is shown is God coming, but the weapon that he uses is the Babylonians coming from the north. That's the, the significance of that. The very direction from which the Babylonians would come to destroy Jerusalem. Now the prophet saw what can best be described as a terrifying tornado, if you want to call a whirlwind a tornado. Uh, that gives us a little bit more of a picture of how big or how strong this thing would be. A tornado with lightning flashing and a brilliant light surrounding the enormous dark cloud. And what he was seeing was just a glimpse of the blazing holiness of God and His awesome power to execute judgment on the earth. Now the Lord God is holy. Holy. And He dwells in the absolute perfection of light. God is light. And in Him is no darkness at all. We know that. He is perfect in righteousness. He is perfect in justice. He is perfect in moral purity. He is the very embodiment of holiness. So I want you to listen to the words of Jesus. When Jesus says in John 8 verse 12, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk, in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So, it, any any picture, any illustration, any anything that we see, that any vision that we receive of God is going to be a vision of light. Whether it be a vision of light that that shows off His His righteousness, or a vision of light that brings forth His judgment, it is still and yet God Himself and God alone. In John 12, verse 46, Jesus said, I am come a light into the world that, whoso, that whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. <clears throat> and once again, his people, his people, he, he, he is wanting them to be in light, not in darkness. What did, what did his people do? They decided to move into darkness. Where did we come from <laughs> when we came to Christ? We came out of darkness into His marvelous light. Darkness was here. Where we went, this took us. Because we were so used to darkness. It's like those cockroaches I talk about all the time. One's in your kitchen. Well, not your kitchen. Man, I remember back a long, long time ago in the old barrio, man. I mean, you know, you turn on the light, go into the kitchen, get a little snack, and, hijo, man, then everything's scattered. Man, where would they go? There's the circadian rhythm of those things, man. They were moving quick. The daytime, you catch them in the daytime, they're just kind of, uh, that's when you get them. I am come a light into the world, Jesus said. That whosoever believeth on me should not abide in darkness. Consider the words of the the psalmist. Psalm 27 verse 1. David, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 36 verse 9. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light shall we see light. But lastly, listen to the words of the prophet Isaiah because we talked about light but we also talked about holiness. And God is holy. And anytime you see a vision of, of, of God, you see the vision of the holiness of God. Because that's what, that's what envelops him. Light reflects his righteousness. Light reflects his holiness, his, 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 his purity. And in Isaiah 60, verse 20, it says, Thy sun shall no more go down, neither shall thy moon withdraw itself. For the Lord shall be thine everlasting light, and the days of thy mourning shall be ended. It is the message of Isaiah. There is the message of Jeremiah. It is the message of Ezekiel. To, his, to their people, that they need to come to the light of their God. You know, back when Isaiah was, was just starting his ministry, he saw a vision of God. He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. This is Isaiah chapter 6. I saw the Lord high and lifted up in, a, in his train, the train of his glory, the train of his majesty, filled the temple. And he saw the angels, the cherubim, the seraphim, wings, three pairs, three sets of wings all around his throne and they began to sing that song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Holy, holy, holy. He's not just holy. He's holy, holy, holy. And, Jer- and Isaiah said, I, uh, when I saw this, he said, I could like realized that I was undone. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips and here I am standing before this holy God folks our God is still holy our God is still righteous he's still just and he's still true and we need to treat him that way We need to examine our hearts and our lives, how we live, how what we do, because he is holy. The good thing to know is that Jesus Christ came to show us the Father. And to embrace him, we embrace the Father who is still holy. And he said to us, as, you, as, as I am holy, so must you be holy. Be ye holy as I am holy. Set your lives apart from this world and set yourselves apart for Christ. We'll pick up with Ezekiel from here and we are uh, our goal is to get through chapter 2 next week. So we're going to finish... Chapter One. we'll get through Chapter Two next week, and we'll be on our way to understanding a little bit more and not having visions of spaceships and uh <laughs> spaceships and x files and all kinds of other stuff. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, you indeed are holy and righteous and just and true. And we are so blessed, so thankful that as we begin this this new work, this new book, Lord, that you will establish your truth in our hearts. Truths that we need to remember, truths that we need to embrace, truths that we need to strengthen our walk, Lord, as we look to the day of Christ's coming. As we see... Our own nation, Lord God, in disarray as we see it falling apart, because the foundations uh, have have certainly been been shaken. I I just pray, Father, that you you will awaken us and and remind us, Lord God, that you're coming again. Remind us, Lord, how important it is to pray for our nation. How important it is for us, Lord, to be, you know, to be good examples of of uh, of believers in Christ. Good examples of of those who've, whose lives have been given, Lord. Uh, sake of the gospel I pray father that you will encourage us Lord to stay in your word to stay Lord God standing strong courageous as you spoke to the heart of Joshua to be courageous and we can only be courageous to the power of your Holy Spirit so fill us all the more with your spirit tonight we ask in Jesus name amen amen